Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Unrivaled talk. Fast talk. Honest talk. Talk radio. The home of free speech. Kevin O'Sullivan. Hardworking, hard-edged, hard to beat. Talk radio. Let's broaden our minds. Access all arguments. Kevin O'Sullivan. On DAB+. On the app. Talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome one and all to my Monday mid-morning show right here on Talk TV. I'm standing in for my excellent friend and colleague Mike Graham, who has entrusted me with his independent republic while he takes a well-deserved break. It's in safe hands, I think. After an astonishing weekend of fast-breaking international news, the fallout from the Russian military mutiny continues apace as Putin talks tough but looks weak and the world holds its breath, waiting for his reaction. That Wagner group leader... Yegevny Prigozhin and his mercenary troops marched almost unopposed to within 100 miles of Moscow was an extraordinary exposure of Putin's diminishing power. The last-minute deal that sent Prigozhin and his men into exile in Belarus only served to underline the panic Putin revealed in his nervous, faltering speech to the people as machine posts, machine gun posts, were mounted around the Russian capital on Saturday. Quite what a threat Prigozhin still poses to Putin remains to be seen, but by common consent, the former thief, jailbird and hot dog seller should be careful what he eats, unless he's fond of poison. I'll keep you posted as this tense situation unfolds, especially in terms of its effect on the Ukraine war and after U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken declared that cracks were appearing in Russia's facade, I'll monitor how world leaders are dealing with the dramatic events that came perilously close to unseating Putin and creating a dangerous vacuum at the Kremlin. What next? Let me know what you think. 03444991000. In other news, The Sun's brilliant political columnist Trevor Kavanagh joins me in just a little while to analyse Rishi's rah, rah, rah interview yesterday with the BBC's Laura Kunzberg, who didn't seem to have received the memo 
about World War Three in the East. Barely mentioned Russia. And the Mail's Peter Hitchens is dropping by with his thoughts on the tension in Russia, a tension he experienced in 1991 when he was based in Moscow during the attempted coup against then-leader Mikhail Gorbachev. Plus, I'll look back on Elton John's remarkable final British concert at Glastonbury last night and assess the glittering career of a superstar singer who has been at the top of the rock game for more than half a century. And I'll try to answer the big question, where the hell was Dua Lipa? While musical mates Brandon Flowers, Jacob Lask, Rina Sawayama all joined him on the pyramid stage, there was no sign of Ms Lipa as Elton delivered a solo version of their smash hit song Cold Heart. The mystery of Dua's notable absence deepened when Dua posted pictures of a family meal on social media. Where was she? Any ideas? 03444991000. Also, I'll get the latest news on the Duke and Duchess of Netflix as more funny stories emerge about Harry and Meghan's dubious work ethic and the Prince's hilariously optimistic plans to interview Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump about their childhood traumas. That is, if they had any. And the wannabe royal interrogator proposed a chat with the Pope on religion. What could go wrong? Hello, Pope. Are you around for a quick chat with Harry? Yeah, bring him over. And finally, why the hell did a school allow a pupil to identify as a mushroom? Has letting pupils dictate their own gender IDs are turned into a farce. 03444991000. How about just telling these kids who want to be mushrooms or cats? No, you can't do it. Now do your homework. How about that? 03444991000. All that and so much more. So don't go anywhere. Stick with me right here, right now at the home of free speech and common sense, Talk TV. Let's spend Monday morning together. Going to go straight to my first guest. We've got obviously a very, very busy show uh, coming up. Uh, lots to discuss, uh, particularly over in the East and what's going on with Russia. Uh, but uh, let's go straight over to the Sun's excellent political columnist, a veteran of the Westminster scene uh, since about uh, 1853, I believe. It's Trevor Kavanagh. Uh, good morning, Trevor. It feels like that, yes, Kevin. How are you? <laughs> I'm very, very well. Uh, you've written today in The Sun uh, about this kind of rather bizarre interview uh, with Laura Kinsberg and Rishi Sunak yesterday, where there was a lot of interesting stuff about mortgages, the cost of living, uh, his plans for the public sector pay rises, all of that, but barely a mention of the dramatic events in Russia. I mean, didn't she get the memo that we came close to the brink of World War Three on Saturday? To be fair to Laura here, Kevin, I think that um, she tried three times and each time she got a dead bat from uh, Rishi. He said, you know, I'm talking to our allies. We'll do things. We'll help. We're having Cobra meetings. And he said the same thing three times. In the end, she moved on. Yeah. Um, I think that at that point in the day, uh, nobody knew exactly what was happening in uh, Russia and the, in the Kremlin. They didn't know where Putin was. Had he bolted from the country? Had he fled the, to a safe haven? Nobody knew. So I don't think there was very much that they could say, although as prime minister, he could have said more. 
Yes, I was going to say, I mean, he's developed this kind of reticence about saying anything. Uh, he was extremely reticent about uh, Boris Johnson when asked, did you, I believe that was Laura Kunzberg again, did you agree with the Privileges Committee's verdict that your predecessor, Boris Johnson, had lied to Parliament and he would not answer the question? So this guy who promised us transparency, integrity and honesty... Uh, seems to be playing his cards uh, suspiciously close to his chest. Uh, from my point of view, I think that he would have been better off simply coming out with what he truly believes, which is that Boris m messed it up, got him into trouble and a, a police fine as well for entering a room where a, a group of people were marking Boris's birthday. I mean, the whole thing is, frankly, a, a mixture of farce and tragedy. Uh, yes, it would have been better for him to have been up front and say, I agree with the findings on this. Um, let's go back to the yesterday morning's interview. Uh, you wrote about this. Uh, I mean, Ben Elton, you know, uh, a, a, a sort of classic multimillionaire socialist has been uh, since the 1980s, where he famously sort of built his career on... Uh, satirising Margaret Thatcher and the Tories, Thatch, Thatch, Thatch. Uh, he seems to have lost none of that old-fashioned socialism, does he? Uh, after a perfectly reasonable interview by uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, we'll have a look at that in a minute, he, he uh, uh, branded the Prime Minister a narcissistic sociopath. Let's have a li little look at some of the interview. I don't think you can conclude that this man is a narcissistic sociopath from this. I mean, I sort of, everybody else wanted to believe, and I sort of believe maybe he's kind of a bit more decent, you know, and it turns out he's as much of a mendacious, narcissistic sociopath as his previous boss. I mean, this man literally, he seems to be making a principle of the fact that he resigned from a government that he'd served loyally and tried to keep propped up for numerous years. He's trying to boast about having worried about inflation while he was Chancellor of the Exchequer under Johnson. Uh, that's the sort of thing you can say uh, when you've got about 50 million quid in the bank. Uh, uh, but he hasn't changed, has he? But that was an unfair allegation to make against Rishi Sunak based on that interview, which, as you wrote about, uh, he was pretty straightforward uh, and forthcoming about the mortgage crisis, what he plans to do, how he must must, must get inflation down and how he's not going to uh, cave into every pay demand from the public sector. Well, that's absolutely right. I thought it was actually quite a riveting interview. You saw a totally different Rishi Sunak. He was on, uh, on the front foot. He was, uh, had his fists up. He was ready to fight and uh, assert himself. And uh, I think it was refreshing at last, long last, actually, for him to show himself as he uh, should do as someone who's trying to lead the country in very, very difficult times, None, not all of which are uh, to be laid at the feet of the Tory party or the Tory government, although some are. As for Ben Elton, I think that he had carefully rehearsed those preposterous allegations against Rishi's personally uh, before he was put on air and they knew he was going to say it. And uh, I just think that he went so far over the top, he almost apologised later. Yes, uh, and uh, of course, the BBC, being the BBC, didn't challenge him on these preposterous allegations. They should have said, uh, uh, from that interview, 
How did you deduce that he's a narcissistic sociopath? Because there's no way that anybody with half a brain could have drawn that conclusion from that chat. But nobody challenged him on that absolutely outrageous accusation. Yes, I, I think that that was, as I say, he had formed those words in his mind, this sort of uh, uh, verbal uh, word salad. Uh, all of that was rehearsed stand-up comic routine. And he... Uh, had nothing to justify it whatsoever. And I think actually it was grotesquely offensive uh, to a person who I, for all uh, the shortcomings of this Tory government, I do believe that basically Rishi Sunak is an honest person. And I think that he is doing what he thinks is right in the public interest. It, it may be different to what some people want. It may be not exactly the answer. Who knows? But to, to question his motivation in that way was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. Um, I want to get your take. Uh, I mean, we're not getting uh, any information from the government. Uh, we've barely heard from the Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly. Uh, as you said, uh, Rishi wasn't going to be drawn on the Russian situation. What's your take on it? Uh, I mean, I would suggest that Putin, uh, while trying to uh, talk a tough game, uh, is very weakened. Uh, if he loses power altogether, it will create a dangerous vacuum in the Kremlin. Uh, how do you think, from your experience in Westminster, that the British government will be drawing up plans uh, in terms of a reaction to the extraordinary events of the weekend over in Moscow? Well, this is an unmitigated disaster for Putin and for the Russian people, because although he's still in place and Prigozhinov has uh, disappeared to Belarus, this is not over by a long shot. What has happened is that uh, Putin has been exposed for what he is, a total liar about Ukraine. Uh, he has actually been accused in public in front of the Russian people who he has deceived for so long of having carried out an actual invasion of an innocent country that had no intention of military conflict with Russia at all, certainly not backed by NATO. So the whole purpose and point of the Ukraine special uh, operation has been exposed for what it is, a fraud which has cost the lives of tens of thousands of innocent uh, Russians in the process, not to mention uh, the uh, Ukrainians. So he, I think, is terminally weakened. The thing is, what comes next? And as I heard a uh, Moscow watcher say over the weekend, you can apply your imagination to what might happen next. But frankly, whatever you do, it won't be good enough because whatever happens next is going to be worse than your worst imagination, simply because of the way that the Russian Federation is constructed. If you are not ruling with an iron fist, then you are vulnerable to assassination. And that's where you find Putin today. Yeah, I don't want to dwell too much on Russia because there's many domestic things for us to discuss. But uh, I was uh, on air on Saturday afternoon as the uh, Wagner group got to within about 100 miles of Moscow. We were actually being told it was 50 miles, uh, but apparently it was about 120 miles. But they'd marched all the way through Russia, virtually unchallenged. Uh, and uh, machine gun posts were set up around Moscow. Uh, so... My, my question really is, is how can Putin survive such a blatant challenge to his power? He has been exposed. He looked very, very nervous on Saturday. Uh, do you think, I'm assuming there'll be a big crackdown domestically, you know, he, he will make uh, Russia an even 
less free place to live. But I, 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 what the worrying thing is, is will he escalate uh, the military operation in Ukraine? And uh, my catchphrase over the weekend was, a rat is dangerous, a cornered rat can be lethal. Do you think in his desperation, if things continue to go as badly for him, that Putin might press the nuclear button? Anything could happen, Kevin, and that is one of the great fears of the Western alliance and, and of course, Ukraine. Um, but what you've got, I think, is a weakened president who is now a fugitive president. He actually fled hit the Moscow. He left the Kremlin at high speed, jumped into his private uh, presidential jet and flew to St. Petersburg, where he's got this huge fortress where he uh, lives in, uh, in total security. That is the act of a weak man, not a cornered rat. This is, uh, this is a man who has lost authority, lost credibility. And once that happens in Moscow, it cannot endure. Yeah, and he was forced to do a deal with Prigozhin, uh, brokered, of course, by Lukashenko, the Belarus president. Uh, that was Putin backtracking, Putin having to do a deal, because although it's likely that Prigozhin and the Wagner group would have been annihilated in Moscow, that would have been a dreadful look for Putin. And he had to avert that. And he had to do this sweet deal, uh, promising Prigozhin and his men that they wouldn't be prosecuted. So, uh, again, a massive sign of weakness uh, from a man who loves to be seen as powerful. Uh, we'll move on to domestic events when we come back, uh, Trevor. But uh, great to talk to you so far. Uh, and we will resume this conversation in just a second. I'm with uh, the columnist for The Sun, the political veteran, Trevor Kavanagh. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio studios. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Uh, welcome back. I'm still talking to The Sun's political columnist, Trevor Kavanagh. Trevor, uh, about a week ago, I was talking to some Labour-supporting friends of mine. Yes, I do have some. Uh, naturally, they're very rich and they live in North London, like most Labour supporters. And I said to them, do you really think Sir Keir Starmer will abolish the House of Lords? And the reason I ask that question is because no politician will abolish the House of Lords because they love it, because they can use it uh, to exercise their patronage. They can fill it with their mates. They they can get support in that way. That's how Westminster works. Uh, but they said, no, no, no. no he, he said he's going to abolish the House of Lords and he definitely will. Well, what do we hear today? Uh, he's not going to abolish the House of Lords. What he's actually going to do is appoint 100 new peers, some of whom may be horror of horrors, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair. To Lord Tony Blair may even be given a position in the star cabinet should Starmer win the next election. Uh, it's a frightening prospect, isn't it? It is. It's like the uh, the undead walking again, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, uh, it's a shocking situation where someone who is very unpopular, really, I mean, it, nobody really wants Starmer. They just don't want the Tories back. And uh, you've got a situation where this uh, government is losing by default or the Labour government or Labour Party will win by default, not because of a huge endorsement. And to bring back these figures who are widely discredited, actually, when their record is examined on the economy and on such things, for instance, as mass immigration, I think, and also the support they've shown throughout, especially Tony Blair, for the European Union, it does make you wonder where we're heading if we do end up with a, a Starmer-led government. Well, I would suggest, uh, especially with uh, Blair involved, and for that matter, Gordon Brown, I would suggest uh, we're heading back into the European Union. 
Yes, I think by one means or another, we are going to gradually surrender Brexit. And I, I think that's going to go down very badly. I, the, the idea that most people regret voting as a majority for Brexit in uh, 2016 is a total myth made up by the Remainers. There is still a very strong feeling of support for Brexit. And the only thing that is there, if you, they wanted to use it, is the disappointment that it's not being made more use of. So, you know, this is a risk that an incoming Labour government will take. And I think also that the, 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 the problems that have been uh, built up in terms of the economy over, for instance, the pandemic, which uh, was out of the hands of this government, would have been even worse if Labour had been in office at the time because it would have gone on for much longer, more money would have been splurged. And we are going to have to, the, uh, any incoming government is still going to have to deal with the, pro the economic problems that uh, came as, as a result of that. And I think Starmer doesn't fully appreciate just what he's going to face. Dealing with the House of Lords would take up a huge amount of political energy. He can't afford that. I don't think he wants to. As I say, uh, Labour leaders love to say they're going to get rid of the House of Lords and then they end up being the people who create more Lords than anyone else. That mm. is the way it works there. Uh, will, uh, will it get through to people that Starmer is a man who makes a promise today and breaks it tomorrow. So he, he clearly is in the process of heinously breaking his promise about abolishing the House of Lords. He has no intention of doing that whatsoever. Instead, he intends to use it to create his Blair cabinet. Uh, and also, uh, of course, he, he promised to, not that this was a good plan, but he did promise to completely axe all North Sea oil and gas, uh, went to Scotland and completely changed his mind about three days later. I mean, this guy... You know, he, he literally is a straw in the wind, isn't he? He just changes his mind day on, day in, day out. When are the re electorate going to realise this? Well, I, I think probably the electorate has already realised this. But um, you've got a situation. He's a weather vane uh, Labour leader. He blows with the wind, as you say. And <clears throat> that wind can blow in any particular direction, as it did. And as uh, Rishi Sunak pointed out yesterday, during the period when Jeremy Corbyn was leading the Labour Party and might have become the most left-wing prime minister in the history of this country. And who was right behind him was uh, Keir Starmer, who now pretends to be Blairite. So I, I do think that the public is aware of these anomalies, these twists and turns, uh, and turning on a sixpence. And that will manifest itself, I think, increasingly during the election campaign. It probably with the lead they've got, Labour now has between 19 and 22 percent in the polls. With that sort of lead, it's impossible to imagine that it's going to simply evaporate between now and Election Day. But I do think there's plenty of room for the Tories to hammer home the message that you've got a totally unreliable leader who believes in precious little except winning office. Uh, yeah, last word about promises. I mean, uh, we're talking about Keir Starmer, who never keeps his promises, changes his mind uh, the day after making a pledge. Uh, but Rishi Sunak's no great shakes on that front either, is he? I mean, uh, we're still uh, remembering his five-point plan to stop the boats. Uh, a month later, they're pouring over in unprecedented numbers. Uh, and uh, so far... 
his uh, plans to help us through the cost of living aren't exactly coming off. I mean, he says I can win the next election because I will deliver my promises. Well, he better start doing that. Would you not agree? I think he knows that too, frankly. I think that from what I know, he is working every day personally in office, uh, working on these plans to um, deal with mass immigration and the boat people in particular. And one of the things he's doing is to work on the judiciary to make sure that they speed up the whole processing uh, system, uh, to increase the space uh, for uh, immigrants so that they can be held instead of escaping into the community, and a variety of other things, not least of which, of course, is the sending them to Rwanda, which is he is determined to do. Now, it hasn't happened so far, and people are getting very frustrated. Uh, there are reasons for that, which, again, are very hard to explain to people who are uh, watching these boat people arrive on, the, on television like you're showing. Uh, but I do have, frankly, some faith that he will act before uh, the end of this summer, say by September. He has to in any case. There's no alternative. One last point, a rather fatuous point, but uh, I think he needs to work on his delivery. I'm getting a little bit sick of all this. No, it's OK. I'm 100 percent on it. I'm on it. I'm on it. I mean, what is he? Three years old. He's got to grow up a bit in uh, his terminology. Would you not agree? Well, I think that he looks rather like a sort of um, one of those Duracell bunnies that's uh, <laughs> bouncing around with a huge amount of energy. Yeah. But I will say this for him. He is in command of his subject, whether he yeah. uh, I mean, he is incredibly fluent. Um, and I think I mean, Rishi has his detractors, uh, but he's all we've got, frankly. It's either that or it's Starmer. There's no one else to lead the Tory party as we speak. So I'm, I'm cutting in more slack than some would, because I think that uh, in the end, people are going to see if inflation begins to fall, if something's done about immigration that he does mean what he says. That's the key, crucial thing, and it must happen within the next six months to nine months. And uh, if he is able to uh, make good on his promises, he'll be able to say, when I make a promise, I keep them. When Keir Starmer makes a promise, you can chuck it into the bin because he'll never keep it. Uh, so, yes, maybe, maybe a little hope on the horizon. Uh, good to talk to you, Trevor, as always. Thank you so much. Trevor Kavanagh, their columnist for The Sun. When uh, we come back, we're going to be talking about Russia. We need to get some expert uh, observations about what's going on in the East, what's going on in Moscow, what's going on with uh, Putin, Prigozhin. Lukashenko, you name it, we'll be analysing it. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV, live from the Talk Radio studios. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back. Uh, I'm joined now uh, by a Russian relations expert, Ewan Grant, who was kind enough to help me through a very hectic Saturday afternoon uh, where we literally thought that Russia was on the edge of civil war as the Wagner group uh, approached uh, advance towards Moscow. And we feared World War Three. I mean, it was really a tenderbox situation. And uh, Ewan Grant was with me throughout the afternoon. Uh, now, Ewan, that ended, uh, I mean, I suppose journalistically, I don't want to call it this, but it was a kind of an anti-climax because they didn't go into Russia. Suddenly there was this deal brokered and Prigozhin and his men headed for Belarus where they will be... Uh, here, uh, remain in exile. Uh, so dramatic stuff, melodramatic stuff on Saturday. 
Uh, here we are, Monday morning. How has the situation changed? Where are we at now? Well, we're still, I think we're still in, in uncertainty, as we certainly were on uh, Saturday and yesterday. Uh, but we're uncertainty with just a lowercase u, not a capital mm. u. Crisis seems to be over. Mm. Whether he's gone to Belarus, the, perhaps the real issue is what about his troops? Because 25,000 people, if it is that, uh, certainly I don't think um, Lukashenko... There's a slip of the tongue, Litvinenko. <laughs> Lukashenko would really want 25,000 Wagnerites on his soil. Um, we've got a bit of time. It's how we use that, analyse it and prepare for chaos, uh, a revitalisation of the war, which is unlikely. They'll have to consolidate for a while and keep supporting Ukraine. Um, and no easy options. What will be going through Putin's mind right now? What will he be doing? I mean, we're expecting some kind of domestic crackdown so he can display that he's still powerful to his own people. Uh, but what about in Ukraine? I mean, will uh, he unleash uh, hell and fury there and again to prove that he's still powerful? And what, what will be the developments that you feel will arise from uh, this dramatic weekend? Yeah, I think it's consolidation in Russia. I don't, I don't think we're going to see a mass purge. I mean, it's not quite. he's not quite Stalin, although Stalin's his hero. You know, he can't in the day, times and days of social media get away with that anymore. I think there will be a clear out to the military after a decent interval. This yeah. perhaps gives him an alibi. Um, but in re Ukraine, I think it will be missile strikes and hoping that they can hold the line against the slow progress, if indeed it is progress, of the Ukrainians. I think we're in for stalemate in Ukraine. Interesting. I spoke to Beltru. She's the uh, uh, chief war correspondent of The Independent. She was in Kiev. I spoke to her yesterday. And uh, some of the journalists there were writing about the electric atmosphere in Ukraine. And she said, it's far from it. Actually, people are very nervous uh, because they fear that Putin might unleash uh, terror upon them in order to prove that uh, the war's still on and he's still in control. I think that is really quite plausible. I would go as far as to say likely as regards missile strikes. Mm. And uh, in the long term, I mean, how, how will Putin will obviously be trying to consolidate his power at home, prove to the people in the Kremlin he's still very much in control. However, everybody knows what happened on Saturday. Uh, he was the one doing the frightened deal. He was the one who had to keep Prigozhin out of Moscow. I think it's likely that Prigozhin would have been annihilated had he have gone into the city, into the capital of Russia. However, that would have been a, a, an almost lethal look for Putin. Yeah, he would have been annihilated, but at what cost? Yes, yeah. Uh, so what will Putin be doing uh, to uh, restore at least the image of some kind of power. Yeah, he will be um, sending out patriotic messages mm. to the army and the people. He's got some advantages there. We have, in a few days' time, next week, we have the 80th anniversary of the opening of the Kursk battle, which is a great big mm -hmm. issue in Russia and Ukraine. He will use that. He will push up the careers and the heroics of professional soldiers, but not necessarily of Shoigu and Gerasimov. 
I think he will look to ease them out and he will try and make sure that he keeps the acquiescence of the oligarchs. Um, we're going to go to a break now. Uh, you will res resume this conversation after these messages. I'm talking to Russian relations expert uh, Ewan Grant about the tinderbox situation in Moscow and what's going on with Putin, what's going on in the Ukraine, what's going on in Belarus where Prigozhin, Yigovevny Prigozhin, uh, remains with his men, with the Wagner group, uh, in some kind of exile. Uh, I would suggest that either Prigozhin doesn't have m many weeks to live or he could continue to pose some kind of threat to Putin. So much still to discuss, so stick with me. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV, live from the Talk Radio studios. Uh, welcome back. Uh, I'm with uh, Ewan Grant, Russian relations expert. We're trying to analyze what's going on in the East. Somebody once said about Russia, nothing is true. Uh, it's always worse than you thought and anything could happen, which probably pretty much sums up what's going on over there. Uh, Ewan, let's talk about Prigozhin, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Uh, we've got a sort of mashup of some of the videos he made when he was down in Bakhmut uh, demanding more weapons. Uh, he doesn't mince his words. Uh, take it away, uh, Mr. Prigozhin. <laughs> И тем, которые не дают нам боеприпасы, будут в аду жрать их потроха, У нас нехватка боеприпасов 70%. Шойгу, Герасимов, где боеприпасы? Посмотрите на них, But he's fun at dinner parties. Uh, but uh, there he is, raging away. He's down in Bakhmut there uh, in the Donbass region where the uh, Va uh, Wagner group, along with other regular Russian soldiers, as he was uh, strenuously pointing out, were not getting enough weapons, were not getting enough equipment. Now, uh, Ewan, he's now, uh, if he's not there yet, he will be soon, in exile in Belarus. Will he continue to pose a threat to Putin? His image will and the reputation of Wagner in the conflict area, because, of course, that is where they were originally recruited and uh, created way, way back, mm -hmm. going sometimes a long way back. Um, but himself, no, I think it's more the image rather than the reality. He will not be able to plot. He will be watched like a hawk. As I said uh, yesterday, uh, I hope he likes polonium because he might find it in his sandwiches soon. I mean, uh, Putin uh, will probably be out to uh, get rid of uh, Mr. Brugosian, won't he? Uh, but I don't think you kill him. To be honest, I... Um, a bit obvious. I, I think that would seem a bit, yeah, a bit too, too Even obvious. by Putin's standard, yeah. a little bit too blatant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the apartment... Um, Lee Harvey Oswald lived in in Minsk is now part of a luxury uh, block. I don't think they'll put him in there because they'll <laughs> only allow him to look out of the window. They won't want to push him out of it. Yeah, too journalistically uh, interesting, I think, that. Um, listen, let me. Uh, uh, what do you guys uh, out there, what do you think uh, about the situation in Russia? What do you think about Putin, the weakened Putin? Are you worried? Give us a call. Let
that uh, that situation uh, will not be a problem for Putin. But what about Lukashenko? Uh, I mean, what are his relations with Putin like? Well, we're told by some that they're close. Well, they're close from necessity. This is a very much a marriage of convenience. Lukashenko is not an idiot. He will be hedging his bets. Okay. Uh, this is complex. This is complex. Remember, he's got direct borders to the West. Yeah. He can make contacts in Vilnius. There's the NATO summit just across his border in a few weeks' mm-hmm. time in Vilnius, just 30-odd kilometres from the Belarusian right. border. He'll be hedging himself. OK. And uh, just uh, before we take some calls, don't forget, do give us a call, 0344-499-1000. What do you think about the situation in Russia? Uh, should we be worried now? Are you more worried than you were this time last week? Uh, give me a call, 0344-499-1000. Uh, let's talk. Let's, just before we do take some calls, you this deal that was done last minute on Saturday... Uh, I mean, it came out of the blue. You yeah, and I experienced yeah, yeah, it together. Yeah, we, we didn't. Uh, we never saw it coming. No, we did what not. do you think was going on? I mean, were you know, was money exchanging hands? You know, because uh, Prigozhin's got a lot of money. Do you think he sort of crossed uh, uh, Lukashenko's hands with uh, silver, or what, what, what was going on there? I think I share the view that some have expressed that it was really Putin doing the deal through Lukashenko, and that. Lukashenko was the front man mm. to save face for everyone. And that Prigozhin, uh, my theory would be that, you know, I think Prigozhin, again, pure speculation, but... Informed did, speculation. I, I think uh, Prigozhin was shocked at how quickly his advance uh, occurred, that uh, there was virtually no resistance. He marched unchallenged to within spitting distance of Mo- Moscow. And when he got to that point, I think the enormity of uh, what was ahead began to dawn on him. So he was in the mood to do a deal. But as you say, Putin was probably far more anxious to avert this invasion of Moscow uh, than Prigozhin even. Yeah, it, it's like the for those with long memories, the Tet Offensive in the Vietnam War. The Americans repelled the Tet Offensive in 1968, but the psychological damage of Viet Cong inside the American embassy in Saigon destroyed Lyndon Johnson, and that finished effectively America's attempts to win the war. He could not survive fighting bullets, explosions, missiles on the outskirts of Moscow. So uh, to draw parallels then, do you think uh, Putin survived this weekend? Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite 
of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But do you think uh, his fate is sealed? That, that uh, sooner or later, or probably later rather than sooner, that uh, he will cease to be the Russian president? Yeah. But I think you hit the key point. I wouldn't expect this to be weeks or even months. I think this is the start, but it may take some considerable time. It's also worth remembering that Prigozhin does have a considerable card, which he may have played, he may not have had to play it, they know he has it, about the elements of Wagner, the components of Wagner that are in Africa. Mm -hmm. And remember, they long predate Mm -hmm. the campaigners in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Now, I would expect Wagner, after a pause in Africa, to keep a low profile, not a terribly long pause, to continue more or less as Mm -hmm. normal there and in South America. And this is deep. And this is where the West can really up its game and start exposing them for what they're up to. Interesting. Now, let's take some calls. I don't know if you'll put your headphones on there, Ewan. I'm sure that you can help these uh, callers with their queries far more than I can. Uh, let's talk first uh, to uh, James, who's in Glasgow. Hello, James. Hello. Um, I think we should be all breathing a sigh of relief that Progosian has agreed to exile to Belarus, because according to the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research in the Voronezh region, uh, there is a storage site for Russian nuclear weapons. So I wouldn't like to think that um, Prigozhin would have established his forces and seized control of that base. And not yeah. that long ago, uh, before these events took place, apparently the FSB uh, captured several uh, Ukrainian cells in and around Moscow. And that seems a little bit too coincidental for me, because as Prigozhin was marching towards Moscow, if there were explosions in and across the city, I think the outcome would have been very different. I think in in respects as to what the military of Russia would have done, it would have been very different. So I, it doesn't, that seems a bit too coincidental for me. Uh, let's ask uh, Ewan Grant what he thinks about that. He's a Russian relations expert. He's with me in the studio. So there we are, James. Uh, your thoughts, sir, Ewan? Unfortunately, I didn't get that. There's uh, something wrong with the... Uh, oh, oh, dear. <laughs> you've got a very quick... Oh, I, would, I certainly would like to reply to James. Uh, what, key... what would be your essential question to you and James, and I'll relay it. Well, I, I made a comment about how uh, I'm breathing a sigh of relief that Prigozhin uh, has agreed to exile to Belarus because, according to the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research, the Voronezh uh, region has got... Uh, as a story site for Russian uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, more okay, James. Uh, you know, what what James is saying is that we should be heaving a sigh of relief because he's been uh, exiled to Belarus, uh, where uh, there are uh, Russian nuclear weapons. Uh, so, so I mean, what's your feeling about that? Is that it? Is Belarus a good place for Prigozhin to be? It doesn't seem that great to me. I must say. Well, it's not that great a place, but in terms of keeping everybody with a 
sigh of relief that he's under watch and there's limits to what he can do. Lukashenko runs a tight ship. Remember, he survived the un severe unrest against him. He Prigozhin will be watched like a hawk, and no, it won't it, it won't be his troops following him. It will be him and maybe a few others, and they will be watched like a hawk. Okay. Um, I'm going to talk to Simon in Basingstoke now, and I'll try and uh, relay what he's saying. I don't know if we can get these headphones sorted out. Uh, Simon uh, in Basingstoke. Hi, Simon. What would you like to say? Yeah, what I'd like to say is that I think that we we should look at there's three three factions here. There's Prigozhin, there's the Russian military that really hates Prigozhin, and there's Putin. Putin is very cautious. Putin is has not launched the Russian counteroffensive. And remember all those troops that were mobilised last year that everybody was expected to be thrown into the front line. Those troops have been trained and equipped and are ready to go. Now, Prigozhin wants, wanted the war to stop, wanted the, the Russian defence minister and chief of staff removed, and he's lost. And Putin had enough power to stop the military absolutely crushing the Wagner group, which they could have done with relative ease. I think what we'll see now is um, we will see the Russian offensive. And I think that's going to show that all, all the Western media has said about the uh, Ukrainian military, who are immensely brave. Um, I can't imagine what it's like fighting there. Let's get a quick but we're, uh, gonna see, yeah, we're going to see the Ukrainians crushed in a matter of months, and I think Putin has been resisting launching that offensive. Okay. Uh, yeah, you think he's in a position of power to do that right now, do you? Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that, Ewan? Well, I, I wouldn't agree. I think the fight, this will all weaken further the fighting spirit exactly. of Russia. Remember that their resistance, which has clearly been considerable to the Ukrainian offensive, seems to be based on artillery and their helicopters and missiles of those helicopters. When they go, If they were to go over to the offensive, that would be very different. Having said that, yes, you're quite right, nothing is, can be ruled out, and therefore that's why we must keep up the help and pressure. After all, this is what happened at Kursk. The I mean, Germans conversely, attacked, and then the counterattack came. I was going to say, conversely, we're talking about the Russian offensive here, but I keep hearing about the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Uh, they've been talking about this for months. Uh, I mean, might that now happen, triggered by the events of this weekend? Well, it depends how you define the counteroffensive, <laughs> because they're saying they haven't committed their the bulk of their reserve forces, which is always the classic sign you hold them back, and how soon you have to put them. Uh, tells you a lot about how it's going. We we need to watch this like a hawk, and that includes electronically as well as by satellite. But I let's not rule out the caller's point. Yeah. Wanting something to happen is not the same thing as saying it will happen. Absolutely. Uh, Simon, very good points. Thank you very much for the call. Simon in Basingstoke. Alan, new caller in Crawley. We'll get to you later. Uh, we have to go to the news now. Uh, thank you, you and Grant. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio studios. The home of common sense. Talk Radio and Talk TV. 
Welcome back. Uh, in a little while, we'll be checking in on uh, the gruesome twosome. We'll be talking about, uh, of course, Harry and Meghan. More stories emerging about their extraordinary deal uh, with Spotify that went so wrong. Uh, they were felt to be work shy uh, by that company and some of their ideas uh, were either weak or just pie in the sky. Extraordinary. They don't really seem to have much of a grip on reality. So we'll be uh, discussing that in just a little while with Charlie Ray, the former Royal Sun editor. Uh, before we get to that, though, we need to talk about a shocking story. A uh, diabetic woman uh, who uh, waited 16 hours for an ambulance uh, and... Uh, I think she died. Yeah, she died. Uh, now, the coroner has slammed the NHS's reliance on a rigid computer system, uh, a computer system that I gather is still in place. So let's talk to a paramedic and spokesperson from the College of Paramedics, R Richard Weber. Uh, good morning, Richard. Good morning, Kevin. Uh, well, tell us about this computer system. I mean, if this is uh, if this woman died after waiting more than sixteen hours for an ambulance, the coroner said the NHS reliance on this computer system uh, is uh, worrying to say the least. Uh, why is that computer system still in place? Uh, there's two main triage systems in use in the UK. Uh, one is a thing called the Medical Priority Dispatch System (MPDS). Another one is Pathways, and they're written up and set up for um, non-clinical staff to take 909 calls. And um, the MPDS is used around the world, whereas Pathways is very much a British system, and they're used to triage patients. They're, they're, they follow an algorithm where a number of questions are asked, and they link to a set of pre-agreed codes by the Department of Health and NHS England, which categorises what call the patient goes into. Well, uh, so the poor lady's name uh, was uh, Sandra Finch. She was 44. She was known to be uh, at risk uh, by doctors. She was a type 1 diabetic. Uh, well, if she's having some sort of diabetic uh, fit, then presumably she would qualify for uh, the fastest emergency ambulance, would she not? I can't comment specifically on this case because I'm not particularly aware of it. What I would say is, first of all, our, our sincere condolences go to Sandra and her course, to Sandra's family yeah. for what's happened. Um, what, what I would what I add is that this was an emergency case. Um, it was categorised, and what we're seeing at the moment is is a number of ambulances delayed offloading at hospitals, and that means there's a significant delay in uh, ambulances being able to respond to the next 999 call. Um, in this particular case, the call was categorised as, as a Category 3, I understand, initially, later upgraded. That means the patient should have had a response for one hour. But what happened in this very tragic case was the patient waited 16 hours to be contacted and to be seen. And from what I've seen is that if the person had received an ambulance within one hour, um, it is highly likely the outcome would have been different, which is which is the point that the coroner's made. And I think it does reflect that the whole pressure the NHS is under uh, emergency department and staff are working very hard, but there are unacceptable delays for patients. And we've seen a number of patients come to harm over the last couple of years, particularly as the delays have got worse and worse. And uh, this sort of system where when people phone up, they're asked questions in order to categorise just how urgently they need an ambulance. I, I mean, is it is it an acceptable system? Is it it hardly seems foolproof. I mean, you're talking to someone down the phone who's sick. Uh, they're not medical experts. You know, they're, they're liable to give answers that aren't sort of medically revealing. You know, is this a system that 
we should be worried about? So it's a system that's used over the world to prioritise ambulance cases. What's now happening in England is that we're now using more and more clinicians in the ambulance service to review the cases. A lot of these does arise, though, because we're waiting a very long time to send an ambulance to people who need one. We're seeing people with heart attacks and so forth and strokes who wait many hours for an ambulance, whereas really they should be having an ambulance in 18 minutes. It's now moved to 30 minutes, but it's, it's still not as quick as anybody would like it to be but i think we are seeing far too many waits and certainly my experience when i work frontline as a, as a paramedic is that regularly go to cases that have been held for a long period of time much longer than they should have been and we do see harm coming to a number of patients what why are, are there too many long waits why is that um if I go back three or four years, um, I would probably see eight or 10 patients in a 12 hour ambulance shift. I now often see three or four because if I pick the patient up, if they do need to go to hospital and about half we can manage in the community, but of the half that do need to go to hospital, when I arrive there, often there's a long delay to offload. I've certainly spent six hours in the back of an ambulance with a patient. So rather than being able to become free in 20, 30 minutes to go to the next case, I'm sat outside the emergency department for up to six hours. That That's the real reason that we're having the significant delays because the, the 909 call rate has climbed slightly, but it's actually the length of time it takes. So I'll say in a 12 hour shift, I've gone from doing eight to 10 calls to now doing three or four as a maximum. So the problem, because uh, I was about to ask you, is the problem that we just don't have enough ambulances. But what you're indicating is the problem is when you get to hospital, can you get them into the hospital? Are there the facilities ready for the patients? Is that what we're saying here? That's the fundamental problem, yes. It's not caused by the emergency department. Hospitals, many hospitals have two or three wards worth of patients waiting to be discharged to the community. There's nowhere to send these patients to. So it means the patients can't leave the emergency department and get into a hospital bed. So the backlog is in the back of an ambulance outside the front of the emergency department. And do you get people, I mean, we're talking about here, uh, poor Sandra Finch, I suspect, you know, uh, did, you know, was giving answers that didn't quite, you know, for example, she couldn't find a blood sugar kit and things like that. Did you get people, though, who understand about the priority system and then they try to game the system by saying, oh, yes, you know, I am uh, 30 seconds into a major coronary or something like that in order to get an ambulance fast when actually all they've got is a toothache or something? It does happen occasionally, but I would say it's very, very occasional. The vast majority of public use the ambulance service wisely. They call 999 and, and, and they give honest answers to it. Mm. I think there are many times where people could perhaps have sorted out other things. They could go to 111 online. They could go and see their pharmacists, go to the GP. I think there's a number of patients who could be picked up elsewhere in the system. But for those who have got chest pain, those who are seriously ill, absolutely the important thing is dial 999 and call an ambulance and then you'll be assessed when you do so. Uh, what would you suggest needs to be done to uh, make sure there's no more Sandra Finch cases? I think it's about proper investment in the ambulance service, ensuring there are enough ambulances. But the ambulances that we do have with highly skilled trained paramedics and other staff who work on them available to answer 999 calls and to not be spending quite so long waiting to offload patients at hospital. It's extremely worrying, uh, but uh, thank you very much for talking to us. That's uh, Richard Weber there. Thank you. Richard Weber is a paramedic and spokesperson from the College of Paramedics. Have you got any experiences of this sort of thing? I mean, it's extremely worrying. Uh, I mean, some friends of mine not so long ago, a friend uh, had a, a very serious heart attack and her husband phoned 
the uh, ambulance service and they said, well, you know, we just haven't got any ambulances. Luckily, they've got a car. He managed to get his wife into the car and uh, raced to the hospital, uh, you know, about 10 million miles an hour. Broke every speed limit in the book, but you can understand why. Uh, When he got there, uh, he got there. It was the Royal Free Hospital, I can say that. It was in Hampstead. And uh, when he, he staggered his wife into the hospital, the doctor just said to her, well, thank God you did that because your wife had about five more minutes to live. So had they have waited for the ambulance, she would have died. So if you haven't got a car sometimes, that could be a very strange situation. But uh, let me know if you've had any uh, experiences with ambulances, if you've had to wait a long time, uh, or if you've been asked a lot of bemusing questions when you call up as they try to prioritise your case. Uh, give me a call, 0344 Still taking calls, of course, on Russia, uh, the cost of living. Uh, Rishi Sunak says uh, he is uh, determined to get inflation down. So that means interest rates are likely to keep going up. So your mortgage repayments are going to carry on rocketing. What do you think about that? 0344 499 When we come back, it's Harry and Meghan time. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV, live for the Talk Radio studios. See it, hear it, think it. Talk radio and talk TV. So where's Megan? Megan is missing, missing in action. Uh, she seems to be keeping her head down uh, amid increasing reports uh, that not only we know already they've lost their Spotify deal that was worth $20 million. Uh, Spotify have no intention of giving uh, the gruesome twosome their full amount because they said they did not produce enough material. All they got in two years were 12 podcasts, archetypes from Megan, uh, which didn't really succeed. So uh, Spotify are not going to give them the full rate. And we are now hearing that Netflix, their other lucrative deal, it was worth $100 million. Uh, They are now, uh, apparently, the streaming giant is considering their options and uh, Harry and Megan may lose another 40 million quid. Uh, on that deal because once again they have not been productive enough and some of their ideas were frankly ridiculous. Uh, I mean Prince Harry wanted to interview Vladimir Putin about uh, his traumatic childhood, the traumas of his childhood. I think you know I don't know about uh, Vladimir Putin's childhood uh, but I think Harry assumes that everybody's childhood was traumatic because he wanted to interview Donald Trump's traumatic Uh, about his traumatic childhood as well. And uh, he's also very interested in religion. So he was going to... uh, You might as well go to the top. So Harry, uh, Harry's great idea about uh, religion was to talk to somebody about it. And uh, he figured, who better than the Pope? Uh, Yeah, nice ideas, Harry. See if you can make that happen. Uh, Now, let's talk to former Royal Sun editor, uh, Charlie Ray. Hello, Charlie. Good morning, old chap. Uh, good to talk to you again. Uh, we talked about this uh, yesterday, but it's worth revisiting. But before we talk about uh, Harry and Meghan, uh, a quick word about uh, Fergie, the Duchess of York, because you yep. revealed to me yesterday, uh, because it had just broken, uh, that uh, she's uh, suffered breast cancer, has yep. uh, had surgery, and uh, the outlook is, uh, is good. We, we now know she's had a mastectomy, uh, and she has... Uh, she uh, it was revealed by her doctors that she had cancer during a routine mammogram. And so 
uh, they, she'd been in hospital for the last six days and uh, came out, I just think, the other, the, other, the other day and is now recovering at home. Um, and, uh, you know, whatever people think about the Duchess of York, whether you like her or you don't, the one thing you can't take away from the woman is that she is a fighter. She, You know, she will fight for everything. Her family... You know, she's had an awful lot of financial problems. She's fought back again. She's not chosen the right people to talk to, but she keeps on fighting away. And you cannot take that away from her, that she is a fighter. And I'm sure that she will fight for this. And I think it's also important that she's now going to be talking about it on her podcast, which obviously is going to help an awful lot of other women who, are, you know, fear the same thing. Yeah, well, all the best uh, to uh, Sarah Ferguson, the Duchess of York, uh, as she battles breast cancer. But it sounds as if surgery in the mastectomy has been successful. So uh, that is extremely good news. Uh, We wish her all the best. Uh, Let's talk about Harry and Meghan now. Uh, Now, uh, so Spotify, we know, uh, have withdrawn their contract and don't want to pay them the full $20 million because all they got in two years were 12 really dreary podcasts from Megan called Archetypes, uh, nothing else. Uh, Harry's ideas were to interview Putin, Trump and the Pope. Nice ideas if you can pull it off. But apparently his idea was that once he'd come up with this notion that the Spotify executives had to go off and set the interviews up. Doesn't really go like that, does it, Harry? Uh, Now, Netflix we hear are really poised to do exactly the same as Spotify. They say all we've got is one six-part series out of them. We know about that. That was their Harry and Meghan series where they poured a bucket over the king and said Britain was full of people who uh, benefited from the slave trade, all of that claptrap. Uh, Nothing else. Uh, But uh, they have come up with some ideas. My favourite was uh, Emily in Paris only with a bloke. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, come on. I, I mean, as we discussed before, their ideas, they've pinched from somewhere else. I mean, one of the, the new ideas which they think Netflix is going to take on is something called Bad Manners. Oh, the Miss Havisham project. <clears throat> the Miss Havisham. This is a, the, 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 the Dickens character, Miss Havisham, from Great Expectations, which, uh, you know, the BBC had a go at uh, not so long ago, which was absolutely dreadful. But they're going to look at this Miss Havisham f- uh, from her childhood. They've got this fixation with people's childhoods, to be <laughs> They have, <laughs> haven't they? It just seems to be... And powerful bizarre. women. Powerful uh, women. Yeah, yeah, She's powerful, obsessed with powerful women. women. Yeah. And looking at uh, how men have influenced her to become a lonely old biddy you know i mean it's it is clearly so miss havisham was a fabulous powerful young woman (laughs) before men ruined her life that's the Uh, world according to megan isn't it and as i said as i said to you before i mean i always thought charles dickens did a half decent job with it he's not a bad writer i mean he's not he's no prince harry but he's all right he's done a a few bits and bobs you know but uh, yeah, it's this sort of thing. Now, the interesting thing is now, Kevin, is it's not just people like you and me sniping away at them. It is now senior people in Hollywood are are woken up. The bubble has definitely been pricked. And you've now got senior executives at both Spotify and Netflix reportedly saying that they have been underwhelmed by the Duke and Duchess of Sussex and their ideas. 
Uh, and you know, there are lots of enough people looking at it and, and saying, you know, you can't carry on like this. Now, the latest guy, I mean, we, we talked about Bill Simmons the other day, a Spotify executive who described them as grifters, i.e. the American... Bleeping <laughs> grifters. Uh, he, he also actually used the word lazy. And this is what lazy. it comes down to, isn't it? <laughs> that these two people, because of their royal status, seem to think that these big companies will pour money at them and they don't really have to do anything uh, to justify those amounts. As, as I said earlier, Prince yeah. Harry thought all he had to say was, get me Putin, Trump and the Pope, and then wait for Spotify to do that. I mean, now, he does not exist on planet Earth, does he? No, he doesn't. Now, the latest guy to put the boot in is a guy called Jeffrey Zimmer. Now, he is head of the United Talent Agency. And he, it's worth noting what he said. He said, it turns out Meghan Markle was not a great audio talent or necessarily any kind of talent. <laughs> and, you know, just because you're famous doesn't make you a great at something. I mean, I mean, I think that just sums up the whole, the whole thing, uh, to be perfectly honest. And, and, and uh, if, you know, tactically, the, the mistake I think they've made, and you and I have some knowledge of this area, uh, they have basically just opened up, just opened the floodgates, done everything they can, you know, with the royals and pouring a bucket over the king, all of that. They've done that. Uh, there's nothing left in that pot. And they've got nothing else to give. Oh. As Bill Simmons said, if they're not talking about the royal family, if they're not pouring a bucket over King Charles's head, no one's interested in what they've got to say. Absolutely. And 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 this is it. Do you know, I was never against them making money. Oh, that's my. up to them. If they wanted to make money, you know, that's fine. But the, the way they're making their money, even the people who are paying them a lot of money are now saying, you're not worth what we're paying you. And in fact, I mean, one of the reasons why they were getting so much Wonga is because of their titles and their links yeah. to the British yeah. royal family. That's the exactly. only reason. Charlie, Charlie, I'm going to have to go, but great to talk to you as always. And by the way, that Dior deal that uh, Megan's supposed to be doing as an influencer, not hearing anything of that, are we? That seems to have gone west as well. Uh, much still to come when we come back. Uh, more on Russia. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV, live from the Talk Radio studios. Uh, in a little while, I'm going to show you a video. Uh, the Just Stop Oil mob have been uh, marching again, and a furious cyclist uh, has reacted in rage, got them out of the road. Uh, I think the, the worm is turning against those people. People have had enough. Just Stop Oil need to think of a different tactic because uh, they're not getting anywhere by blocking roads, blocking bridges, ruining people's days. We'll show you that video in just a little while. Uh, before we get to that, though, I want to talk about schools. Uh, uh, we've got stories today of pupil of a pupil telling uh, their teacher they identify as a fox. Uh, we heard last week uh, a big row with a teacher calling a pupil despicable because that pupil, a 13-year-old girl, said it was a bit ridiculous that one of her classmates was identifying as a cat. The teacher said, that's despicable. Uh, and uh, also over the weekend, it emerged that at a £24,000 a year public school, uh, a uh, pupil is identifying as a mushroom and the teachers are indulging that. Uh, isn't it time teachers just turned around to these kids and said, you're not a mushroom, 
Do your homework. Uh, let's talk to two guests. Uh, first, uh, educational psychologist Teresa Bliss and uh, Chris McGovern, Campaign for Real Education, former head teacher from North London. Uh, good afternoon to both of you. Uh, Chris, can I ask you first, uh, you heard what I just said, isn't it time that teachers turn round to kids who said, I'm identifying it as a mushroom, instead of saying, oh, well, in that case, I, I will treat you as a piece of fungus. Instead of that, it's about time to say, you're not a mushroom, get on with your work. Kevin, in any school, someone's going to be in charge. It helps if it's the teachers, but at the moment, <laughs> too many schools. You know, the, the, children are, the children are in charge. And it's, this hasn't come out of the blue, by the way. You know, it's been in the news recently, but... Um, We've had an emphasis on what we call child-centred education for several decades, and now it's gone so far that we're pandering to silliness. But it has a much more sinister side than this, because identifying as a mushroom isn't actually necessarily over-dangerous for society. But a few years ago, I pointed out to the national press, in the wake of the bombings in the ISIS bombers in Paris, there was a, there was a, and somebody, this has not been printed at all yet uh, in this current debate, there was a, a model lesson on the Times Educational Supplement, and that's the most widely read journal for teachers, and it asked children to identify as ISIS terrorists and to see the good points of being an ISIS terrorist, such as you're having white slave girls and to look at it from their point of view. And that's been going on for a while in school. So on the one hand, we can say identifying as a fox or a mushroom is just silly, but when you start saying also, and you're putting this on the major website, identify as a terrorist, you're in real deep water. So, yes, the teachers need to be in charge. And if they're not going to be in charge, someone will always be in charge. And it's the mushrooms at the moment. <laughs> it's indeed. Uh, Teresa, as, if I was a parent, uh, if I was the parent, uh, the mum, mother and father of the mushroom, at this £24,000 a year public school, I'd be saying, well, uh, what am I spending my money on? Isn't it time that teachers stood up to some of these kids? Now, that this is not uh, to detract from the importance of treating kids who genuinely have gender dysmorphia seriously. Of course, they have to be treated seriously and sympathetically. But it does seem to me that... This gender identifying, which sometimes is as serious and should be taken seriously, has opened some kind of floodgate and suddenly we've got teachers saying, oh, yes, you're a mushroom. Oh, yes, you're a fox. Oh, you are indeed a cat. And when a 13-year-old kid, a rather bright kid, by the way, stood up to a teacher at a school called Rye College, a state secondary school in Sussex, and said, I think anybody who says they're a cat needs help. They're crazy. The teacher went mad, started shouting, how dare you, despicable! This is ridiculous. The kid's right. The, that, that kid identifying as a cat is not a cat. She's a pupil. Get on with your work. Isn't it time we stopped all of this nonsense? Right. I'm Ruth Coppard, not Teresa. Sorry. Oh, OK, sorry. I've got that. OK, sorry, Still sorry, sorry, Ruth. Psychologist. Okay. Sorry, Ruth, I don't know what, what, why that's down there. No, um, and yes, of course, it's ridiculous, but I, I wonder how much it's all been ramped up. Apparently, the girl at Rye College said, was saying, um, how can you identify as a cat when you're a girl? Hmm. Yeah. And that was misinterpreted to some extent by the teacher. I have spoken since that to several adolescents and none of them have come across it in their school. 
But if you read the Daily Mail and other papers, you get the impression it's happening. Well, we heard, well, but Ruth, we did hear <laughs> the tape. We heard the tape of what yeah, happened sure in that classroom. And incredibly, no. afterwards, Rye College insisted that no one in the school was identifying as a cat. Well, we heard it. Yeah. Well, the girl was apparently saying it was a, it was a, a philosophical discussion, if you like. Well, why um, did the, the teacher, teacher lose her temper then? Yeah, she heard a bit of it. Teachers are under enormous stress at the moment. It's towards the well, end. Well, that's because they, they keep like uh, accepting that kids are mushrooms and foxes and cats. Well, any child in Scotland or whatever is identifying as most children are not. Adolescence is a time when kids try and uh, define their identity. They've always right. been sort of, oh, I'm a goth, I'm a, a lesbian, I'm a this, I'm a that. Mm. And two weeks later, they think of something else. Okay. It's not uncommon for small children to say I'm a Dalmatian. It is uncommon in, in adolescence. But isn't it, isn't it time, as an educational psychologist, would it not be better if when a kid says I'm a mushroom or a, a fox or a cat, that the teacher says, no, you're not, you're a pupil, get on with your work? Absolutely. And one of the difficulties we've got now is, I think, a, a lack of situations where it is possible to discuss that rationally. Teachers are very defensive. Uh, you read about people being dismissed for fairly spurious reasons, I think. There should be a possibility in school to have time to discuss how do we address this? How do we deal with this with the class? Of course, it's silly. Of course, it's silly. It's not helpful to the children. And it's a distraction, I, I imagine, for the teachers. Well, Chris, uh, but it does seem a picture is emerging that kids, uh, as soon as they identify as whatever the hell they want to identify is, I'm not saying Ruth's put, uh, no doubt correct that some teachers maybe might stand up to it, but it seems to me a picture is emerging of uh, a sort of generation of teachers who are terrified to turn around to kids and say, no, this gender ident or, or rather this identity that you're giving me is ludicrous. I'm not having it. Uh, now get on with your work, as I keep saying. Uh, teachers, I think, are getting frightened in these situations. Would I be right in that assessment? Yeah, I think teachers are very nervous. They do need guidance, and it's time the government provided guidance. I mean, in, in, Ruth has said it's in a bit of a Daily Mail story, but in defence of the Daily Mail, you know, they're calling out for it for what it is. I mean, they're the, the newspaper who named the killers of Stephen Lawrence, for heaven's sake. The Daily Mail, because they call it out, aren't necessarily wrong because they're the Daily Mail. No, they're absolutely right. There's a wide concern about this, and we can't just be in denial. We do need to restore teacher control in the classroom. Now, I've worked with te in teachers for 35 years. Teachers are under a lot of pressure. But they're not, people aren't coming into the profession now. They want to teach physics or French or history. And instead, they're being told they've got to teach identity politics and race, anti-racism, all this sort of stuff. Now, you know, some of these issues have important, but many teachers just want to teach their subject. And I'm afraid we're putting people off the job. So it's really got quite long term consequences, this. And of course, teachers need to be in control, but they lack they lack the nerve. They we need good teachers who are going to take, going to be authoritarian in the classroom. And if that's frightening to some people, well, I'm afraid that's the only way you're going to improve because we're competing with countries around the world who, by the age of 15, are already about three years ahead of us in basic, basic literacy and numeracy and so forth. So we've got to compete. And we're not going to compete by focusing on gender identity and whether you're a fox and so forth. We've got to focus on what's important. And most children will agree with me. They will say, yeah, you know, Chris is right. We want to have learning. We want to know things. We want to be able to compete with the other kids around the world and forget the fox and forget the mushroom. 
put the teacher back in control. The kids are yearning for this. They want control. They want order. They, and particularly these days, they want order and authority in the classroom. They're yearning for that. And yet we hear these mad stories. But these stories are not coming out of nothing. Yeah, Ruth, uh, one of the other aspects of this uh, confrontation in the classroom at Rye College was the teacher saying to the two kids, you can identify with anything that you want to be. It's up to you. Well, is that the sort of nonsense we should be preaching to children in state schools? My feeling is that if this child is a cat, shouldn't be in the classroom, should be doing cat things somewhere. You know, the thing is, Ruth, she was. She was making meow sounds. Then and the teacher's going, great, you're identifying. In the classroom. You know. No, I mean, of course not. But I do think that when you read the stories of the teachers who are then accosted by senior management and challenged about their rights to uh, disagree with students, there is this increasing uh, consensus that small children have opinions and we have to regard them respectfully. Respectfully, okay, but equally discuss them and talk about them and enable the children yeah. to accurately define where they're coming from and why. Yeah. You can't just be a cat today in the classroom. I don't it think is... you should be a cat. You should be allowed to be a cat at all. Uh, when I went to school, admittedly a while ago, they used to teach us things like maths and English and, uh, you know, sports. Uh, now, you know, it's like you can be whatever you want to be. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And I think parents are very worried about it. Good to talk to you. Ruth Coppard, that is your name. Thank you. Sorry about getting it wrong. Thank you for coming on. That's Ruth Coppard, uh, educational psychologist, and uh, Chris McGovern, uh, former head teacher, campaign for real education. Uh, thank you to both of you across the uk online and on dab the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio if you enjoyed that be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1 monday to friday on talk radio via dab online or via the talk radio app if you have an opinion on the stories we cover we'd love to hear from you call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at talk radio during the show to have your say the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio